good to be with you again this evening. And uh, just as a quick review from this morning, uh, we looked at some of the marks of genuine faith that Paul was excited about as he looked at the lives of the Corinthian believers. And at the end of the chapter that we looked at this morning, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 through 10, it described in those verses what we could call by various terms. We could look at it as conversion. We could look at it as repentance. We could look at it as a response of faith. All of these things are involved in what Paul described in the lives of the Thessalonians. And tonight I want us to look at specifically the idea of repentance in more detail. Before we get there, I want to ask you this. How many of you have been told to do something and then did the exact opposite? I'm not looking for a show of hands, but just think about the question. This is especially common for little kids. Put them in their high chair. You put something in front of them. What happens? It ends up on the floor. You say, don't do that. They look you in the eye and it goes on the floor again. So for anyone who questions whether we have a sin nature, all you have to do is look at the fact that we don't have to learn to do the opposite of what someone asks us to do. This can be a struggle for teenagers as well. Uh, maybe your parents say, finish your homework before you go out and play ball with your friends. And the next day you're getting ready to go to school or, or you've, uh, it's time to check your assignments and they say, did you get it done? Well, I didn't feel like doing it. Obviously, that is a, another perhaps a subtle form of disobedience. And it's possible for us even as adults. Maybe your boss says, you need to get this project done by Thursday. And you say, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do it on Friday because that just works better for me. And again, there is a doing something different than we have been told to do. The reason that I mention that is that whatever the situation, when we're told to do something and for various reasons we don't, sometimes our motivation is fear, sometimes our motivation is laziness, sometimes it's pride, but at the end of the day it's still disobedience. So before we can think about the idea of repentance, we have to think about why we need to repent. And the why we need to repent is because we sin, we do wrong, we fail to do what God tells us we should do, or we do what God tells us we should not do. The passage that we're going to look at tonight in Jonah, Jonah in the Old Testament is a classic example of disobedience. You know the story, I'm sure. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, I'm not going to Nineveh. He gets on a ship going as far away as possible, and he heads toward Tarshish, and then God arrests Jonah's attention with a storm. Now we say, well, maybe, maybe Jonah really thought he could run away from God. How do we know that that's not the case? Because in, later in Jonah chapter 1, he's going to tell the sailors, God made everything, God rules over everything, and more or less God knows everything. And so if, if that's true, Jonah realized that he really couldn't run away from God. So why then did he try? Because he didn't want to do what God had called for him to do. And so in, in my mind, Jonah is still trying to get out of doing what God wants him to do, and so he says to the sailors, throw me overboard. And I think, at least possibly, in his mind was this idea, if I drown in the ocean, I don't have to go to Nineveh, and I really don't want to go to Nineveh. But God had other plans for Jonah. The sea is calmed, and he's in the belly of the fish, and that's usually where we, where we stop with our story of Jonah in Sunday school, right? That's not a bad thing, but that's usually where we stop. Often we skip most of chapter 2. What's chapter 2 of Jonah? It's Jonah's prayer to God while he's inside the fish. 
And so I want us to look at that because I think it's an example of a biblical prayer of repentance. Now, I'm not saying Jonah is following God wholeheartedly or completely or perfectly at this point. Why would I say that? Because when we get to Jonah chapter 4, he shows an attitude that doesn't evidence uh, compassion or doesn't really... He still hasn't fully got the kindness that God has showed to him, and he doesn't want God to show that same kindness to the Ninevites. But I do think he genuinely repents, and he expresses that in this prayer. The other thing that struck me when I looked at this passage a while ago is that there are a number of parallels between Jonah's language and what we find in various of the Psalms. And so I want to try to highlight some of those parallels for you because I think that it illustrates a characteristics of a godly prayer of repentance. As we get into the chapter, I think you'll notice from verse 1 that we can pray to God wherever we are. It says, Jonah prayed to God from the stomach of the fish. I don't know what the image was that you had when you heard this story as a child, perhaps, or later on in life. Uh, I asked my wife about it, and she said she had this idea that Jonah was there maybe with a lamp and, and sitting there waiting for God to work. I said, where did the lamp come from? She said, I don't know. But, but we conjure up these images in our minds. But in reality, what's the inside of a fish like? Any of you have ever gone fishing? The inside of a fish is dark. It's not very pleasant. And it would have been a great opportunity for Jonah to reflect on, how did I get into this situation that I'm in? And ironically, at the same time, to reflect on the fact that even through this undesirable method, God had saved his life. So let's see what Jonah prayed. We'll start in verse 2. He said, I call out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. We'll come back to verse 10 a little bit later. What is one of the principles that I think we can see from this prayer of Jonah? The first principle I want us to see from these verses is that when we are praying to God and expressing an attitude of repentance for our sin, we need to communicate using Scripture. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that Jonah was quoting specific psalms, but he certainly had similar concepts in his mind when he is praying to God. We need to do this, first of all, to describe our need. Look at verse 3. He describes his need as, You had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, the current engulfed me, your breakers and billows passed over me. It's very similar language to what you find in Psalm 42 and verse 7, where the author there says, Waves and breakers had rolled over me. Now the interesting difference is, in Psalm 42, that language is used figuratively. Of The, the writer of Psalm 42 seems to be in a place where he is overwhelmed, and so he uses the language of, of the water rolling over him. But you look at Jonah's situation, he is in a position where that is actually what is happening. 
The waves and the breakers are closing over his head, and he's sinking into the water. So here's my question related to that verse. Do we describe our needs specifically to God? Jonah says, you had cast me into the deep. Now it's interesting that he attributes to God the fact that he's cast in the deep, given the fact that it was the sailors who threw them over, him overboard, and that it was at his request, and yet he sees in this circumstance the hand of God. And so when he cries out to God, he describes specifically what is going on there. Not only does he describe his need, but he admits his fault. Look at verse 4. He says, I have been expelled from your sight. This language of being expelled from your sight, I think, highlights for us the fact that Jonah had done something wrong. Why would God cast out one of his people from his presence because he had sinned? Think back to the Garden of Eden. Why were Adam and Eve expelled from the garden? Because they sinned in God's sight. And so Jonah has a sense of his own guilt, his own fault in this situation, and he acknowledges that, and he says, I have been expelled from your sight. Now, again, we see in this phrase, I think, a parallel to Psalm 42, both in verse 4 and verse 6 of Psalm 42. And again, there, that author of that psalm is has a sense of distance from God. Now, we realize God is everywhere, so I can't be physically closer or further away from God based on my relationship with Him. But there is a real and accurate sense in which our awareness of our closeness to God is affected by whether we are obeying God or disobeying God. It's not a question of relationship, because if we belong to God, that relationship doesn't go away if we sin. It's like the relationship of a parent with a child. Your child does something that upsets you, that you said not to do. They're still your child. But there's a, there's a sense of a barrier, of, a, of a, a strain in the relationship. And I think that there are parallels to what Jonah's experiencing here related to God. This word that he uses for expelled or, or banished from your sight is used in other places about the idea of driving sheep before a shepherd or of God driving out a nation before Israel. And so Jonah is acknowledging that I have received consequences from God that he deserved. Then we look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Jonah in chapter 1 had ironically seen the emptiness of worshiping vain idols in the sense that the sailors who threw him overboard had cried out to their gods using their idols right before they threw him overboard and the this, this sea didn't calm, the storm didn't stop. They're still in a position of great peril. And so Jonah, ironically, is acknowledging that regarding vain idols is foolish. And yet at some level, he had behaved similarly to those sailors. They cried out to false gods. He had pursued his own way. God had said, do this. And Jonah said, no, I'm going to go my own way instead. Now the second phrase there, verse 8, is something that uh, is difficult to understand. There's a couple of different possible meanings for it. It could be the idea, there's the idea of forsaking, and then there's the idea of faithfulness. But the question is, whose faithfulness, whose loyalty? Is it that those who follow idols are abandoning their faithfulness to those idols? Is it the idea that those who regard idols are abandoning the faithfulness, the loyalty that God gives to His people? I think most likely it's probably the second. 
because Jonah here is calling out to God and he's reminded of God's faithfulness in contrast to his own disobedience and he's highlighting the fact that if you follow idols, if you go your own way, you are, as then IV says, forfeiting the grace that could be yours. God is kind and merciful and gracious to his people. If you stubbornly cling to idols, then you are abandoning the grace and the relationship and the loyal love that God has toward his people. And we saw this morning that idolatry is putting something before or above or in place of God because we think that it will get us something. For example, God says, in my presence is joy. But we say, you know what? I can get joy some other way. Not by doing what God says, not by following Him. I can get joy by going my own way and pursuing things that please me. That is a kind of idolatry. God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, and he was convinced that his life would be better if he did not go to Nineveh. Why? Well, the Ninevites, uh, the people of Assyria, were a cruel and wicked people. They had done terrible things to the Israelites and other surrounding nations. So perhaps there's a measure of fear. Perhaps there's a measure of hatred. Jonah did not want to go there. And yet, by refusing God's command, he was putting himself above what God had called him to do. And so do we use language of Scripture to admit our fault? Do we say, as Jonah says, these are the consequences that I have suffered because of my sinful choices? Or that following a false god leads to these Results. It's easy for us to use non-biblical labels for sinful things that we do. We get upset and we yell at someone by us and we say, oh, it's just venting. What we need to do is call it sin and say, I was sinfully angry. Will you forgive me? Or there are a number of other things that we can do. You say, you know what? I really want that thing and I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. And we are not willing to call it greed or lack of contentment, and we need to call things sin when they are sin. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we hate idolatry, or do we see it as no big deal? And part of recognizing idolatry, part of rejecting it, is using biblical language to describe it. So in his prayer, Jonah uses scriptural language. Secondly, in his prayer, Jonah calls out to God. Look at verse 2. He says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. And then he says in verse 4, I will look again towards your holy temple. He says in verse 6, You have brought my life up from the pit. In verse 7, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. And this even goes back to chapter 1 and verse 6 and verse 9 where the sailors tried to get Jonah to cry to his God and he wouldn't. And they cried to their gods without any positive effect. But in this prayer, Jonah cries out to God. Why? Why would Jonah cry to God? First of all, because only God can help in desperate need. The sailors' best efforts couldn't turn the storm away. They threw their cargo overboard. They rowed as hard as they could in the direction away from the storm. They cried out to their gods. Nothing that they tried to do accomplished what needed to be accomplished. Nothing of what they were trying to do brought them salvation. And so Jonah needed to cry to God. It's as though Jonah is literally sinking into the water. Look at verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds or seaweed was wrapped around my head. 
look at this and consider the idea that Jonah was about to die. Who could he call to? Only God. This reminds me of um, what we were looking at in the scripture reading a few moments ago, where it says, whoever will call the name of the Lord will be saved. We are in that same kind of peril that Jonah was in if we have not begun to trust in God as our Savior. And why is that? Because our sin has separated us from God, because God's wrath is on those who don't believe in Him, who don't follow after Him. And so we may find ourselves, if we have never begun to repent, begun to turn after God in that same situation, and not just in a threat of physical death, but in a threat of spiritual death, of being separated from God forever. And the only place that we can turn in those kinds of circumstances is to God. As we saw this morning, we can't save ourselves. That's through God's power, God's work, and so we must cry out to Him. And even as believers, if we've begun to trust in Christ, we need to recognize that God is our shield, our help, our strength, and sometimes when we've sinned, our response, our tendency is to say, I am already feel questionable in my state of relationship to God. I'm just going to keep going this way away from Him. But what we cannot do that, we have to turn back to God because He's the only one who, as we're going to see next, can forgive sin. Look at verse 4. And uh, second half of verse 4. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now there's a lot of things going on in the nation of Israel that would uh, be difficult to explain adequately in just a few minutes. But this language of looking again toward your holy temple, the temple was the central place of worship for the people of Israel. And part of their responsibility as the people of God was to be rightly related to God. And a key aspect of this was the sacrifices that they made as uh, in connection with a recognition of their sin and a recognition of obedience to God. And so, when Jonah says here, I will look again toward your holy temple, I think he recognizes that the only way that he can do that is if he rightly relates to God. Now, obviously, for us as, as Christians today, we do not relate to God through a temple system, through sacrifices of animals, but we do relate to God through Christ, through the sacrifice that he made, and so that is the way that we approach God. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's true at the moment that we trust Christ. That's true all throughout our lives. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so if only God can forgive sin, then we must approach God in the way that He is required that we approach Him. And so I think we see here this the, in this uh, parallels to Psalm 43 where it says, Send your light and your truth, and lead me to your holy mountain. Uh, also, Psalm 42 and 43 talks about this idea of, I will look again, I will worship once again in the temple. Now, obviously, we don't hear, have here a formal statement of Jonah saying, God, I sinned against you. God, will you forgive me? God, will you restore me? And yet, I think the language that he uses here gives us a sense that he has real awareness of his need to make those statements before God, and has turned back to God. And so this then leads us to the question of, do we seek God's forgiveness? Jonah clearly sinned. God said, go here, and Jonah went here. 
And so Jonah needed to turn back to God. Remember this morning it said, we turn away from idols and we turn to God. That's the point of repentance at the moment of salvation. But that's something that we keep doing all throughout our lives. First uh, John says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we sin, whatever that sin might be, whether it be anger or envy or hatred or whatever it might be, do we acknowledge that sin, do we turn away from that sin, and do we turn back to God? That's, I think, what we see needs to happen here. The third thing that we see is the idea of committing to obedience. Look at verse 9. It says, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Genuine repentance means doing what God requires. I spoke a moment ago about in the Old Testament, they rightly related to God by performing the sacrifices that God expected of them. Sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of offerings in connection with their sin. And so for Jonah to say, I'm going to sacrifice to you, means that he recognizes there are things that he needs to do. Now some would see here a sacrifice, not specifically of an offering for sin, but a sacrifice that might be a renewal of his uh, status as a prophet. But, regardless of the nature of the sacrifice, Jonah recognizes God has required a sacrifice, and I'm going to do it. It wasn't enough just to do the sacrifice outwardly. Because God rebuked Saul for that, right? Saul said, I've got all these animals. I know you said to wipe out this nation, uh, but I saved all the animals because I'm going to use them to do sacrifices for you, God. And God said, I would rather that you obey than that you make sacrifices. Not that the sacrifices weren't important. Not that the outward signs of following God aren't important. But if we don't have a heart that matches those signs, we're not really following God. We can come to church in our context, we can come to church, we can pray, we can read the Bible, and we can do it because we feel guilty if we don't. And that's not really following after God. It has to flow out of a heart that genuinely desires and has a relationship with God. Jonah's repentance, furthermore, was not actually proved until he did what God had told him to do in the first place. And this is something where sometimes we, um, we want to say, I did wrong, will you forgive me? Okay, now that's all taken care of. But until we actually do the thing that God requires of us, we're not showing that we're genuinely repentant. We see that Jonah actually does this in Jonah 3 and verse 3. God repeats his command in verses 1 and 2, and it says in verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So at the end of the day, how do you know if repentance is real? How do you know if you've really turned away from your sin and turned back to God? when you start doing the things that God has told you to do. God doesn't give us audible commands like he did to Jonah, but God has given us a number of commands in the Bible that we are to obey, that we are to follow. And if we are seeking to follow those and we carry them out, that shows that we have properly repented and are repenting. We need the Spirit's help to have lasting change, but we also have to stop doing the thing or things that displease God and start doing what pleases him in the place of those things. And then genuine repentance means keeping commitments to God. He says at the end of verse 9, That which I have vowed, I will pay. We're not going to turn there, but you could jot down if you wanted for further study, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It speaks at length about the seriousness of making commitments, making vows to God. 
We don't know the nature of Jonah's vow. What was it that he was doing? Was he renewing his status as a prophet? Had he said something to God along the lines of, if you deliver me, I will go and do such and such? Regardless of what it was that he vowed, he said, I'm going to do it. And the passage in Ecclesiastes says, don't make foolish promises. The promises that you make, you need to keep. And so Jonah recognizes this, and I think that this is a further sign of repentance. I will keep the commitments that I have made before God. And this is vastly different in contrasting with his response in chapter 1 and verse 3, where God said, do this, and Jonah ran away. Here he said, I promised something to you, God, and I'm going to fulfill it. And so we see in this a transformation in Jonah's life. What is the hope found at the end of Jonah's prayer? He says, salvation is from the Lord. And again, we need to trust in God. We need to believe in God. We cannot trust in ourselves. We cannot trust in other people. If we will be saved from the sin that we have committed, it only comes from the Lord. We understand that it only comes through believing and accepting Jesus Christ and what He has done in our place. And so when it says salvation is from the Lord, that's the hope that Jonah's prayer expresses. Because Jonah did not deserve God's mercy. Jonah, by following a form of idolatry, had forsaken the grace that God offered, at least for a time. And yet in turning back to God, in fulfilling what God had called him to do, he expresses a repentance that recognizes that I may have abandoned God for a time, but He is the only one that I can genuinely trust in. He is the one that I need to believe in. How do we know that God heard Jonah's prayer? Verse 10, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Again, not a pleasant picture, but yet, even in this, we see a sign of God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's acceptance of Jonah's prayer. God put him back on dry land, not so he could go back to Tarshish, but so he could go to Nineveh where God had called him to go. So what does a prayer of repentance look like? There are many descriptions of this in the Bible, but from this passage, I think we can say that we need to speak of sin as sin. If God says it's sin, we shouldn't call it something else. We call out to God because He alone can help, can restore, can offer forgiveness. We devote ourselves once again to obedience, following up our words, our prayer, our statement of commitment with actions that show that we really meant it. Obviously, this is sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the question that I would ask you is, do you pray in this way? When you have sinned, do you call your sin, sin? Do you cry out to God? And do you start following and living for Him again? If you don't, or if this is a struggle, Consider how to make your prayers of repentance more biblical. But obviously this has to start at some point. And if you've never repented for the first time, God wants you to turn from sin and turn to Him. You do this through Jesus. He's the only way. You trust Him fully to save you, even as He saved Jonah, not just from physical death, but also from a life of disobedience that would end in eternal death. And so if you already pray in this way, keep up the good work and recognize that repentance is not something you do once and you never have to do it again. It's something that characterizes the life of the Christian. Because as it says in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. But when we acknowledge our sin and turn away from it, God is faithful to hear 
and he's faithful to forgive us, even as he did in the story of Jonah. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at the example of your word, we see that Jonah needed to repent. Lord, we acknowledge and recognize that we ourselves need to repent in many ways and at many points. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be clear from uh, truth of Scripture that we are aware of what areas we might not be living for you and pleasing you in, that as Jonah did repent of his sin of running away from you, that we would put off those sins and turn back to you and once again live in obedience to you. Lord, I pray that we would do this so that you would be glorified and so that people around us would see your mercy and your faithfulness. You said in another place in your word that though we may not be faithful, you are always faithful. Though we might deny, you cannot deny yourself that you are a God who keeps your word. And so we see in this that salvation comes from you and that you are a good and faithful God. And I pray that we might cry out to you uh, every time that we sin and continue to turn back to you, that we would genuinely follow you because you are this sort of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.